it's good to see you. It's good, been good for me to be here to worship. I hope it has been for you as well. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are, have been with Jesus for, at this time, three years. You've been there since the beginning, since the time Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came down on him like a dove. You've seen the signs that Jesus has been performing. You were there at the wedding when Jesus turned the water into wine. You were there when Jesus multiplied bread to thousands of people. You were there and saw a man who had been born blind go and wash and his eyes were open. You were there when Jesus took a man who had been in a tomb for four days and by that time already stunk. And Jesus brought him back to life and raised him from the dead. By this time, you've come to know that this man is more than a man. He's the Messiah. You've, you've given up everything in your life to follow him. And now the time has come. It's the Passover time. And, and Jesus has already made it known to you that his hour has come. And just this past week, you marched into Jerusalem with him while Jesus rode in on a baby donkey. You shouted, Hosanna! Just as we just sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And knowing that the time of Jesus' kingdom was near, knowing that the time was near for Jesus to establish, to restore his kingdom, on the way in, you're starting to think, you know what? I've been with Jesus from the beginning. I've been one of his closest friends. What's my rank in the kingdom? And so you start an argument with the other disciples over who's going to be. You know, we all know Jesus is going to be number one, but who's going to be number two? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And then you come into the, uh, the room that was prepared and you sit down and you eat an evening meal. And while you're eating, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Savior, stands up from the meal. He walks over, he takes off his outer clothes, and he girds himself with a towel, and he stoops down to wash your feet. And not only to wash your feet, but to wash the feet of all those other disciples next to you, and to dry them with the towel he's holding. What would be in your mind? What would you be thinking about Jesus? What would you be thinking about as king? What would you be thinking about what Jesus wants from you? We're going to come back to the story uh, a little bit later in the lesson. But today, I want to talk to you about the pursuit of humility. Um, this is actually part two, a uh, second part of a discussion we began a couple weeks back. Um, where we started talking about putting off pride. And I, I spoke two weeks ago about the dangers of pride. Um, and about manifestations of pride in ourselves. Um, if you didn't get a chance to hear that and you want that, let me know. I'll pass that along to you. But we're going to pick up where we left off uh, this, last, this last lesson. And I want us to think for a moment. You, first of all, I mean, you might be thinking, you know, who does this guy think he is to talk about this subject? How arrogant could he be? And I do want to be clear about this as we start this. I don't claim to be perfectly humble in heart or anything close to it. Um, I think more accurately I could be described as a proud man in pursuit of humility. 
But this is an important subject in part because pride is a struggle for each and every one of us. And it's really, I said this last time, but it's, it is so important. It's, it's not a question of whether you have pride in your life. It, you do. The only question is where does pride manifest itself? And how much is it manifesting itself? If you don't think that's true, consider this. In the book of Numbers, we're told that Moses was a humble man, more humble than any man on the earth. But if you read the whole story of the book of, uh, of, of Moses' life, do you see evidences of pride in Moses' heart? The points in his life? On numerous occasions, the Bible points out evidence of pride in the life of Moses. So pride is a struggle even for the humble. It's a, it's a struggle for each one of us. And this is why the pursuit of humility is so important. Because... Becoming humble, the pursuit of humility, will always be an ongoing, lifelong process. We are never going to arrive in this world at the point where we are purely and perfectly humble in heart. Pride is at the root of every sin. And the Bible says that as long as we're in this body, in this world, in this life, we will none be without sin. And so, we're in pursuit of humility. So I want to talk today about this because I think too often we live our lives blissfully unaware of how much pride has a hold on our hearts. How much it's affecting us. How much it's blinding us. And, and if we're not aware of it, we won't be attacking it. We won't be, we won't be in pursuit of humility. We won't be pursuing the humble heart that we need to be pleasing to God. So I want us to think about today the process of how do we pursue humility. Because it's not enough for you to be aware of, of the dangers of pride and to see the promises of humility in the Bible. It's not even enough for you to be aware of pride in your own heart, manifestations of pride in your own heart. All genuine transformation begins with purposeful application. And so today what I'd like to do is talk about uh, humility and the pursuit of it by looking at how do I develop a humble perspective? How do I embark on this humble process of pursuing humility? And then finally at the end we'll come back to the story in John 13 and we'll talk about how to how the perfectly humble person helps us in our pursuit of humility. But first let's talk for a, br for a moment briefly about what will give us a perspective that we need to pursue humility. I said a couple weeks back that humility is seeing ourselves as we really are in light of who God is. And with that in mind, I want you to consider quickly three things that will help us to develop a humble perspective. Number one, we are the creature and God is the creator. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 4 when they're singing around the throne and the 24 elders fall down? Do you remember what they say in, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11? They say, or in verse 12, they, they're saying with a loud voice, the 24 elders, worthy is the Lamb. I'm in chapter 5, that's not the one I'm looking for. Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Do you remember when David, in Psalm 8 and verse 1, was reflecting, and he said, When I consider the heavens and the moon and the stars and everything that you've made, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
Who am I that you even think about me, that you care about me, that you want me? We are the creature, and God is the creator. And when I'm thinking about myself as the creature, and I'm thinking about God as the creator, it humbles me. In my mind, it humbles my perspective. Number two, we are the sinners, and God is perfectly sinless. Isn't that true? That's what the Bible teaches. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah comes into the glory of God. We sing a song sometimes, holy, holy, holy. That comes first in the Bible from Isaiah chapter 6, where, God comes, where, where Isaiah comes in the presence of God, and the angels are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And as Isaiah comes to see God's holiness, his perfect sinlessness, you know what he does? He falls on his face, and he says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm, I'm, I'm from, from a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah looked on the perfect holiness of God, he became aware of his utter sinfulness. And he became aware of how desperately he needed God. It humbled him. Thinking about the sinless perfect God of heaven and seeing his own sinful self and his own sinful people humble. We are the sinners and God is perfectly sinless. Number three, though, another thing that will help our perspective in, in pursuit of humility is to understand that we are the saved and God is the Savior. Once you think about this, we are the saved and God is the Savior. You know, for some people, salvation uh, actually produces pride in them. I don't know if you've been guilty of that or seen that. You've probably seen it in others. It's harder sometimes to see it in ourselves. But we're guilty of this sometimes. We think, well, I'm a saved person. Look at how great I am. But actually the Bible says that the fact that we are the saved and God is the Savior shouldn't make us puffed up. It ought to humble us. In Romans chapter 3, the passage that we know well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't stop there. It goes on. You know what he says? We've been justified as a gift by His grace. That is what Nelson was saying, that everything that we have is a gift from God. It is not anything we deserve. It is not anything that we have earned. And so at the end of that passage, you know what he says? Where is boasting? It is excluded. That is, we have nothing to boast about. Since we, are, we have done nothing to save ourselves, we are saved by God's grace alone, therefore we must learn to become humble. So we need to have a humble perspective. We need to realize we're the creatures and God is the creator. We're the sinners God is perfectly sinless. We are the saved and God is our savior. Let's talk though practically. What, what does humility suit of it look like practically in our lives? What are some things that I can do on a day-by-day -day basis? What do the scriptures teach us about how we can practice the discipline of pursuing humility? And I want, to say, I want to give a few suggestions that are rooted in scripture. Maybe not all of these will be helpful to you, but hopefully some of them will be. Some of them you're already doing, I know. Some of them we maybe need some encouragement in. Number one, uh, let me suggest that one thing that will help us a great deal is to start, if we're not already doing this, to start practicing the spiritual disciplines of devoting ourselves to the Word and to prayer. On a day-by-day -day basis, 
Devoting yourself to the word and to prayer. Not just when you're in, with the group, not just when you're in the assembly, not just when you're in community, but on your own, day by day, to devote yourself to the word and to prayer. Uh, the book of Psalms is, is all about the importance of the word, the importance of meditation on the word, and the importance of prayer. And the book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1 by introducing two paths. The path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. In Psalm 1, you see an illustration of the life of the righteous. The righteous man meditates on the law of the Lord, day and night. And because of that, he becomes fruitful, he grows, he prospers. God blesses him. God, you could say, God exalts the humble man who meditates on the law of the Lord. In Psalm 2, you actually see that also the wicked people meditate. They meditate on wickedness. They're actually taking counsel, same word for meditation. They're taking counsel to figure out how they can, how they can make themselves great and, and get God out of their lives. And the Bible describes in Psalm 2 that their pride actually results in God humiliating them. God tears them down. What I want you to see, though, from this is that the Bible actually teaches us that what we meditate on will affect the kind of character that we become. Actually, one of the things that the psalm is teaching us is that everybody meditates on something. That is, we're all uh, disciplining our minds to think about something on a day-by-day basis. And the problem is that if we're not devoting ourselves to the Word, if the Word's not on our mind, we, left to ourselves, often are quick to become arrogant. You see that in the Bible. And I want you to think about this. You may be thinking, well, I'm in the Word and I'm not even getting anything out of it. Like sometimes I read the Word and I don't even, I don't even see any tangible fruit or, or growth that comes from it. But I want you to think about this. Just by sitting down and approaching God in the Word, you are saying to God, I need you and I depend on you. And even if you don't see any tangible fruit from that, that is good for you because it, it teaches you humility. That every day you depend on God. And I want you to think about this. The flip side of that is also true. What does it say about me if I don't spend time in the Word? And I don't spend time in prayer? What does it say about me when I wake up in the morning and go right about my daily business of doing what I want to do and living the way I want to live and, and going about and doing the things that I think need to be done without any thought or acknowledgement of God? We never say this without words. But we're saying this with our lives. God, I don't really need you. I can do this. I got this. One thing that will help us with humility is as each day begin, begin your day, even if it's just a moment, even if it's just a second, acknowledging your need for God and giving thanks for the life that he's giving. Let me suggest also, as each day ends, it's helpful. In the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter 5, he talks about humility in terms of anxiety. The part of humility is casting your cares on God. One thing I'll suggest, helpful with anxiety and helpful in humility, is as each day ends, to take your cares, your anxieties to God. And to trust and to entrust them in His care. And to give thanks, give God the glory for all the good things that He's done for you in that day. Practicing the spiritual discipline, devoting yourself to the Word of prayer, will help you to pursue a humble heart. You might be thinking, though, what do we look for as I'm in the Word? Number two, second thing you can do is study the attributes of God. Study the Bible with the purpose of seeing God. 
And especially, if you're in pursuit of humility, take time to read the parts of Scripture that stress the aspects of God's character, the ways in which God is not like us, the incommunicable attributes of God, to use a big word there. Think about who God is. Uh, you remember in, in Job 26 when uh, Job is reflecting on God and he's thinking about all the great things that God, uh, God is and God does. And at the end of it, he says, these are the mere edges of his ways. If you're struggling with pride, go read the book of Job. Uh, God teaches Job a good bit about humility. Job was a humble man, but in that book he learned a lot more about humility, about who God is and about who he is. Uh, read passages like Isaiah 40 and other parts of Scripture that stress how great and awesome God is, how different God is than us, how much greater, how transcendent God is. And remember the simple truth that apart from God, you cannot exist. But, apart, but, but God, apart from you, has always existed. For us, life is lived between two hospitals, right? Come into this world and we go out. But God, who does not wither, he does not fade, he does not change. For him, life is not fragile at all. He is eternal. Um, number three, I think this is very important. Not only do we need to be consistently devoted to the word and prayer, but we need to be consistently confessing sin. To God first, but also to other people. Um, the Bible, obviously, we read Psalm 51, a great picture of David finally humbling himself. Finally, because it took him a while. But confessing his sin to God and openly begging for God's forgiveness. You might recall also, though, in the New Testament, James talks about, in James 5 and verse 16, that we ought to be confessing our sins one to another and praying for each other so that you may be healed. And I want you to think about this. One reason we may struggle so long and so, so much with pride is because we have a really hard time confessing it. We have a really hard time admitting it, both to God and to each other. And because we have a hard time admitting it, we become less and less aware of it in us. And less and less, and less able to fight against it. Ask yourself, how aware am I of the sin that's in my life? When I sin, do I just quickly say, God forgive me for that, and then move on and try to think about something totally else? How often do I take time to reflect upon the weight of my sin and what my sin has cost God and how it's hurt God and how it's hurt His plan His mission? This is something I struggle with. Sometimes it's, it's easier to just move forward and keep working. But sometimes we need to stop and appreciate the weight of our sins, what they've done to us, what they've done to God, how they've hurt us. And confessing our sin does that. The word confess just means to say the same thing as. You might think, why do I need to confess that God already knows? But actually, God wants us to think about our sins and to come to Him and see that only He can heal us from it. Ask yourself, are you openly and honestly confessing sin to God and to other brothers and sisters so that you can be healed? Or are you maybe too, too proud to admit this? Too proud to confess it to anyone? Remember in Numbers 32, the Bible tells us that to be sure that your sin will find you out. This is a really important principle in Scripture. That is, if you try to cover up your sin, what will God do? He'll uncover it. He'll expose it. But if you come to God and seek in God Him to cover your sin, God's promise is that He will cover it. 
If you uncover your sin before God and admit your sin, God, in fact, will cover it. Cover it. The person in pursuit of humility confesses sin because he knows that he needs to in order to stay conscious of his own sinfulness in God's hope. Number four, invite and pursue correction. For the scripture on this, I'll just refer you to the book of Proverbs and you will find over and over and over and over and over and over again. Proverbs that talk about the importance of inviting and pursuing correction, having wise counsels in your life and turning to them. You will not defeat the sin of pride on your own. We're not even able to see it clearly on our own. Apart from God and also from others, it's hard for us to see how much pride has a grip on us. So think about this. How aggressively and how uh, conscientiously are you pursuing and inviting correction in your life? I'll tell you this. For most of my life, I didn't invite correction. My parents can testify to this. I uh, ran from it. I didn't pursue, uh, pursue uh, counsel, particularly... I pursued counsel in things that may be related to uh, ambitions, but not related to sin. And I want to tell you, that's a very dangerous habit to fall into. We need help. We need help to see our sin. We, we need help but from others to be able to, to uh, acknowledge our sin, to, to become aware of it, and also to remove it. You might say, well, I don't want to confess my sin to other people. I don't want to invite that kind of correction. Because people don't always, aren't always accurate. They don't always give wise counsel. Sometimes they see things about me that are not true. And I'll tell you this, if you seek wise counsel, they will not always be 100% accurate. The only 100% accurate counsel you'll get is from the Word of God. But think about this. Don't be, don't be put off when your friend's observations are not 100% accurate. A humble man looks for any measure of truth in correction. Even if 99% of what is said is not helpful, I'll look for the 1%. If I'm humble in heart, and say, is there anything I can get from this that will change me and help me grow and become more and more like God? Proverbs 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Sobering thought. I said this a couple weeks ago, but uh, this is hard. Do the pride interview. That is, ask the people closest in your life. Where do you see pride in me? It's a hard thing to do, um, but it's a helpful thing to do. And ask, where, where do you see pride manifesting itself in my life? All right, here's one I haven't thought about until the last couple of weeks, but I've been thinking about a lot recently. And that is take a humble posture in prayer. Now, the Bible doesn't speak a whole lot or stress in detail. You have to pray in a certain posture. Actually, you see in the Bible people praying in all different postures. And so it's not like there's one right posture for prayer. But one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that oftentimes when we pray, even my posture shows that I'm not really conscious of who God is. Sometimes I'll just be laying back in my seat, not even thinking about, wow, I'm coming into the presence of someone great. You know, if the President of the United States, one that you have deep respect for, walks into this room, what would you do? Some of you might stand up. Some cultures, people might bow their head a little bit. It's a matter of respect, right? You do something to show that you respect that person or respect the office that that person is in because they're in a position of high authority. 
But think about it. Sometimes we come in the presence of God. We're so nonchalant about it, even in our posture. In the Bible, you see people standing often in prayer. And it's a sign of respect that they're coming into the presence of a great God, in the presence of someone who's important. Sometimes you see people lying prostrate on the ground. And it's a sign of humility, a sign that we don't deserve to be in the presence, acknowledging our unworthiness before God. Sometimes you'll see people lifting their hands. And what is, the, what is the idea of lifting hands in prayer? It's the idea of saying, God, I need you. And I can't do this without you. Um, even the, the idea of kneeling or bowing your head ought to be, a, for us, not just a tradition or something that we do. It ought to be a sign of respect, a sign of humility. That this is who God is, and I'm not worthy to be in his presence. He is so much greater than I am. Uh, taking a humble posture in prayer. Of course, we're not just talking about the outward posture but also the inward posture. I need to, as I approach God in prayer, I need to do a better job of thinking about who is God before I come into his presence. Uh, related to that, number six, practice giving thanks. Use Psalm 30, 136 as a template for this and many other psalms, but Psalm 136 is just a list of things that the psalmist is giving thanks for and after everyone, everything that he mentions, he says, for his loving kindness is everlasting. He acknowledges the gift from God, and then he says, this is a reflection of who you are. And I want to tell you, pride people, proud people have a hard time giving thanks. They have a hard time saying it, both to God and to each other. Sometimes we, we can't say thank you because we're, we're having a, we, we think we deserve it. We think we've earned it. We think we've merited the kind of treatment that we get. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. And if we want to grow in humility, one thing we can do on a day-by-day -day basis is take time in prayer to practice thanksgiving. I've encouraged this before some, to some of you, um, but one thing that's helpful, sometimes when you pray, force yourself to not ask God for anything, to only give thanks. This time, I'm only going to dedicate myself to giving thanks to God. I'll tell you, that will humble you as you reflect more on all the gifts that God has given you. Discipline yourself to take time to pray simply in thanksgiving to God. Number seven, and lastly, serve and sacrifice in ways that will cost you much but give you little in return. If you want to become humble, find ways to serve that won't benefit you in any sort of way in this life but will have great benefit to the people that you're serving. Which brings us back to John 13. Because in John 13, we see the best way to pursue humility is to fix our eyes on the one who came from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, to teach us to become humble. To fix our eyes on the one who is our creator, but who's also our sinless Savior. And when we see ourselves in light of His glory, and we study Him, and we learn to imitate Him, to humble ourselves, to stoop down and serve, we become more and more like Him. Humble and lowly in heart. No friend like Him, we sing, is so high and holy, yet no friend is so weak and lowly as He Turn back to John 13, if you will, and we'll end here. I want you to notice the thing in the text. 
Jesus knows that his hour has come. This is his time to die. You might be thinking, at this moment, what would, what would be on your mind? What would be on your heart? Namely, the suffering, the trouble I'm about to go through, right? Me, but not Jesus. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so, during the supper, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. First thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus came forth from God. All right, don't forget this. This is so important. For the longest, I thought that the story of Jesus began in his birth in a manger. You know, that's when Jesus was born. That's when it began. The story of Jesus didn't begin there. Jesus came forth from God. That is, he was in heaven with God. You want to see humility? Watch somebody falling from heaven to earth. Somebody who never should have had to come down here. Never should have had to leave heaven, but he came down here for us. That's humility. He came forth from God. Notice also that not only did he come down to earth to show humility, but on earth he's showing humility. Look at him. He's in the middle of a meal here. Most of us wouldn't, wouldn't let many things distract us from eating, right? But Jesus in the middle of a meal gets up, and he's not getting up so that they can bow down to him or they can worship him. He gets up so that he can take off his outer garment and stoop down on his knee, put a towel on his waist, and get down and wash their dirty feet. The dirty feet of the disciples, the sinful creator, created disciples. And he washes them. Jesus humbled himself. He takes up the towel. You might ask yourself, what's in it for him? What does Jesus get out of this? Nothing. Except the joy of serving who he loves. Notice a couple other things. When Jesus starts to wash their feet, what is Peter's reaction? Peter says, wait a second, Jesus. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I do now you don't understand, but you'll understand it later. And Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. Peter refuses to humble himself and allow Jesus to wash his feet. Wait a second, Jesus. You're not what I... Peter doesn't understand him. He doesn't see himself clearly, but he does... He is becoming, beginning to see Jesus more clearly. And he realizes that Jesus, right, whatever it is, it's higher than his. Jesus, you're not going to be the guy washing my feet. It's interesting to me. Peter doesn't offer to take up the towel himself and wash the disciples' feet. But he does realize that Jesus shouldn't be the one washing his. But did you notice Jesus' response in verse 8? It's kind of strange. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. What does Jesus mean by that? What is he saying? What is he getting at? I think this symbol of washing feet has a much deeper spiritual meaning. Where is Jesus headed? the night before he's betrayed. This is his time has come to die. The symbol of washing feet has a spiritual significance. Jesus says only those who are washed can have a part with him. If we're unwilling to let Jesus wash us, then we cannot be with him. If we're unwilling to let Jesus serve us and save us, then we cannot be saved. 
In fact, this story, this event shows us, symbolizes that truth that John enunciates in more detail in 1 John 1 and verse 7, that we are being cleansed from every sin by the blood of Jesus. That it's His blood that it would take to wash us and make us pure. And if we're not willing to humble ourselves and let Jesus cleanse us and let Jesus wash us and let Jesus make us new, if we think we can do it on our own, I can make myself righteous, I can make myself good, we will always be dirty. We will always be sinful. We will be left in our pride and it will destroy us. But if we'll humble ourselves and allow Jesus to serve us, then we can have a part with Him. We can be with Him. Notice that's not how the story ends, though. I want you to notice one more thing in verses 12 through 14. After Jesus washed their feet and had taken His garments, put His clothes back on, He reclines at the table again, He says to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. So I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who, sent, who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know this, you are blessed if you do them. You know what Jesus was doing that night was showing them that they needed to be washed in order to be saved. But he was also showing them that if they were going to follow him, then they had to learn to wash people's feet too. They had to learn to serve in ways that would give little to no personal benefit to them, but be of tremendous saving benefit to the people they were serving. And I want you to think about this. If we really want to pursue humility, this is where it begins. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who is perfectly humble in heart. And we look at him, and we see how he served, we see how he sacrificed, we see how he stooped down. We see how he considered one another more important than himself. And as we see that, we humble ourselves, and we get down beside him, and with him, and we follow him and we serve, and we sacrifice, even when it doesn't work. Jesus shows us the path to humility. We're on it. You wouldn't be here today if you weren't saying, hey, you know what, God, I need you. And I appreciate that about each and every one of you. And I pray that God will help us to grow and continue to grow in humility. I want to tell you, the only way we'll be effective in Brooklyn for long, for life, is if we become humble apart. Willing to trust in God, willing to depend on God, willing to let God wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us and remove from us not just our past sins, but even the impurities and the pride and the selfishness that's still in us, that God can continue to refine us. And that's how we become more and more like Him. That's how God will use us to glorify Him. I hope that's helpful to you. I know I'm not a, as good an example of that as maybe I do in sharing that, but I hope it's still helpful to us as we grow into that. Let us pray. God, Teach us to be humble and humble. Teach us to let go of our pride, to see you as you truly are, so that we can worship you and honor you and give you the glory that you deserve. Help us as we uh, imperfectly strive 
to become more like you. Teach us to be humble and humble. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.